Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are kicking off a new series, and we're so glad that you're here with us today. And this conversation is called, How Does the Bible Work? Part 1, The Thing Before the Thing. Enjoy. that we're a robo and not a cruise ship. And what we believe about that is that conversation is the reason why we get together. Uh, that whether it's the music or it's the sermon or it's meeting an interesting person, uh, it's all about empowering us as the actual body of Christ. Uh, and that it's really important that we get to hear from one another. Uh, I say it all the time in here, uh, some questions that are just so uninteresting to me about churches are is who is the pastor, how big is this thing, and what's the music like? Uh, that doesn't tell me anything about a church. Instead, I want to hear who are the people that go there? Are they engaged in justice? Do they love people? Are they gracious? Are they maturing? Are they transforming? Are they a part of healing the world? That's the exciting stuff, uh, and that's you all. Um, and just so incredibly grateful for you all. I am sad, so sad today uh, that nobody gets to be here. Uh, I don't know about you, but I just had that moment this week where I'm like, I hate COVID. Uh, passionately. Uh, this whole thing, I, I think we're all ready for it to be done and understandable. We will continue on it to uh, keep people safe, but God, I'm sick of it. Um, so I miss you all. Yeah, cl- clapping for being sick of COVID. I like that. Um, but I think the real thing is I just, I miss human contact. I miss seeing so many people I love. Uh, I miss the magic of this room at New Abbey, just seeing the, the beauty and the conversation and just uh, the love that's here. Uh, so I hope wherever you're at, uh, you're experiencing that love. Uh, but with that, we're gonna get into some conversation time. So you're gonna find three or four people around you, just joking, you can't do that. So what you're gonna do is uh, you're gonna click a link uh, that says connect with us, or there's a link that they're providing for Zoom uh, that you can have a conversation. And the question that we're starting with today is, what were you told the Bible is? What are we told the Bible is? Enjoy. Hello, human beings. Welcome back from your Zoom groups. Uh, I'm very excited to get into the conversation today. Uh, earlier uh, this year in April, kind of when COVID was just starting and Zoom was everywhere, uh, I did this limited Zoom series um, on Thursday nights of how does the Bible work? And the conversations were incredible. And it was really interesting to talk with people about it. Uh, and I just realized that in a community like ours, that there are so many people who are, are deconstructing and asking bigger questions about their lives and humanity and faith and who is God. And at the very same time, there are just so many many of us that also still want to hold on to some things, that our faith in church, in the Bible, and God are imperative and crucial to how we see the world. Now, there's certainly some things that we should let go of. There's some things that have been painful and hurtful and violent, uh, and they only represent certain powerful people. And in those kinds of things, we're going to let them go, but we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater that we want to be people who still hold on to the crucial components of our faith and of our lives without um, throwing everything else out. So we're going to be in this six-week series of How Does the Bible Work? And today, we're talking about the thing behind the thing or the thing before the thing, that the real action of the Hebrew Bible actually comes in the story of Exodus, but we're going to begin a little bit later in the story of Genesis to kind of get ourselves moving. And so a little bit of the question uh, that I want to move us towards today is this bigger idea, uh, simply this, 
that God's actually for you. And this idea that God's for you was revolutionary 4,000 years ago. The idea that God's for you was revolutionary 2,000 years ago with the life of Jesus. The idea that God's for you might still be revolutionary today if you're sitting in a place in your life and you're wondering, is the divine really care about me and my life? Is God really for our humanity? How do we make sense of things like evil and suffering and COVID and systemic racism or just the challenges of everyday life or family, family systems? And so if you can hold on to that idea, we'll be coming back to it, of that God is for you. And this bigger idea that God is for you and for us as human beings is a central idea that is found in the Bible of covenant. And we're going to get back to that thing a little bit later. But before that, we've got to do some things. So if we're going to talk about the fact that God's for us, then we need to unlearn some stuff because we've all been told some things about the Bible uh, that we need to kind of take away. If we're going to unlearn some things, then we need to put some new things in there. And most of us just need a better Jewish perspective of how the scriptures actually work. If we can look at the Jewish perspective of scripture, then we can talk about the Tanakh, everybody's favorite word. Say Tanakh with me at home and I could hear none of you. Perfect. Thank you so much. Uh, and if we're going to talk about the Tanakh, then, of course, we're going to talk about the Hobbit. And if we can talk about the Hobbit, then maybe we'll finally realize that the gods aren't angry with us. And if the gods aren't angry with us, then maybe it's okay that things are messy. And if things are messy, then maybe God uses the unlikely. And if God can use the unlikely, then amen. Not amen or you need amen, but amen. Uh, Frankie just shouted for that because he needs amen. That was beautiful. I really like that. Uh, and then if we're going to talk about that, then we're going to talk about covenants. And if we're going to talk about covenant, then we're going to talk about blessing. So here we go. Many of us, what we were told the Bible is, is the inerrant word of God, or it's without error in some way, or that the Bible somehow provides all of the answers for your life. Many of us, uh, like myself, grew up in evangelical worlds, which is just uh, a part of Protestantism. And so there was something that happened in the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago. We got this Latin phrase, sola scriptura, which means scripture alone, that all that we need for answers and for faith is just the Bible. And we have, many of us have even heard things uh, about the Bible, little acronyms like this, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth, which is just another way for me just to vomit just a little bit in my mouth. That the Bible is anything but that. The Bible was never intended to be just scripture alone. Even the Bible doesn't talk about the Bible itself that way. That there's one scripture that's used in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is useful, but even that's not even talking about the New Testament. That the Bible doesn't talk about itself in the way that we talk about the Bible. That something that we've done over the last 500 years, and more specifically over the last 200 years in a country like the United States of America, is that we've tried cleaning up the Bible again and again and again and make it do things that it was never intended to do. And so much of the Bible, what happened to it is that we took all of the humanity out of it. We took the humanity out of it and only wanted it to be perfect and the divine. And part of the reasons that we did that as people of faith is that we were scared that culture was getting ahead of us. That since the Enlightenment, 
since the scientific uh, kind of revolution, that society and thinking was getting bigger and broader than where we believe scripture was. And so we began to retract and to conserve and to protect ourselves, which was a mistake. And then we began to force the Bible to do things that it was never intended to do. We made it this ultimate word of God, which I'm not saying that it's not the word of God, but what we've taken away from it is that there's been any humanity in these scriptures. And so we take the stories of the Bible, which are quite complex, which are quite messy, which are violent at times, they're problematic at times, they disagree with each other at times, and we've tried cleaning all of that up because what we believe is that somehow what human beings needed was perfection. Instead of saying, what if the messiness of the Bible, the complications of the Bible, the difficulty of it is more true to the human experience? What if we allowed it to be difficult that it's more representative of our actual lives and that there is a God, that there is the divine that interacts with us in the questioning, in the figuring it out, in the doubt? What if we allowed scripture to be what scripture was actually intended to do? to be voices that speak to the massive diversity of the human experience. Instead of trying to limit it to some quotations or some tweets that somehow you just read in the morning, you just lay the Bible on your face like osmosis and somehow you're healed of a disease or something. What if these were ancient words by people of faith who were also figuring it out in their time and in their place and for those of us in Los Angeles in 2020 or wherever we come from, what if the scriptures still have something to say, even in the world of COVID and Black Lives Matter and systemic racism and a 2020 election? What if the scriptures can handle that complexity and can help us as we think about the questions that are ahead? So as we unlearn some things, as we let go of the Bible trying to be perfect, as we let go of the Bible trying to somehow be infallible or inerrant. Because then we get into all kinds of complicated questions. Well, which Bible? Which version? Which language? We already know so much to this day. We have so much scholarship. In fact, there's a group of people who are part of New Abbey who have a movie coming out called 1946. And what they're uncovering is that the word homosexual wasn't in any translation in any language of the Bible until 1946. There's a great example. Somebody added that word thousands of years later. And for the last 70 years, there've been people in the LGBTQ community who've been suffering because of a translation. Because someone else told them, well, the word of God is infallible and inerrant and it doesn't change. The problem was it did because people's understandings of words change. The languages that they speak change. We have so many examples of this. And this isn't to erode away the power of scripture. It's to say that they're complicated, that they're diverse, and that's good because so are you. Your life's not perfect. Your life isn't all figured out. And so the scriptures actually have something to say to you because they're filled with humanity, because we're human beings. So if we're gonna unlearn some things, then we need to pick some things up. One of the things that we need to pick up is that the Bible was written through a Jewish perspective. The Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament was truly written for Jews by Jews. Even some people say, well, like the Gospel of Luke was written for Gentiles. Yeah, but it was still written by Jews for Jews, which means this. It was written by marginalized people for marginalized people. 
It was written by oppressed people for oppressed people. That the perspective of the Bible is not from a perspective of power. In fact, the Bible is unique compared to so many of the other ancient religions because the other ancient religions were created so that those gods, the god of Zeus, the gods of Mars, the gods of the Romans and the Greek empires and the Babylonians and the Assyrians were all created to support the powerful systems of the day, like the kings and the emperors. Those gods' creation stories were rooted around the powerful people. But these scriptures, this God is a God who starts from the bottom. This is a God who takes the lowest of the low, the most unlikely, and says, I'm even your God, that you are human too. This is not a system just to make the powerful more powerful. This is a story where every single human being is made in my image. It's incredibly revolutionary. And we lose that because most of us are Americans. And for most Americans, the theology that we were given, which is also pulled from a lot of Protestantism, which was pulled from most white colonial European powers, was a theology of continuing to support the power structures. So it's difficult for many Americans to read the Bible and to allow the Bible to speak to its truest audience because we're powerful people. We are a part of the richest and most powerful country that the world has ever seen. And because of that, even if we might not be powerful, oftentimes those that are giving us the sermons, those that are telling us about the word of God, those that are teaching us scriptures, they might be powerful or the theology that they were given was from powerful groups. And so we have co-opted the power of scripture and the power of scripture is always to empower the powerless because it's the powerless that see that they actually need God. There's a reason even in like the scriptures of Luke that Jesus speaks more often to the religious or the rich Uh, and challenges them because these are two groups that often don't realize that they actually need God. They believe that they have everything figured out. And so the Jewish perspective is one of recognizing that God speaks through the lowest of the low, through the most unlikely, through marginalized and oppressed voices. In the year 2020, what a voice to re-engage the scriptures at a time where we're saying at every level of society that those voices matter, that black lives matter, that we need to hear from different groups of people because the entire human experience is important. That maybe, just maybe, even in 2020, the Bible's more relevant than it's ever been if we can unlearn some things. That even Jesus, who was a good Jew, saw scripture through a Jewish perspective, which is one of asking questions that many of us were taught that the Bible is here to give you answers. Jesus himself was asked 307 questions. He asked other people 187 questions, and he only answered three of people's questions. That the Jewish way of thinking is that it's not about having better answers. It's about asking better questions. It's not about being more dogmatic and more certain and making sure that you're absolutely correct. It's about your questions pivoting to the context of your life, that your questions today should be different than the questions you are asking yourself five years from now. Your questions five years from now, right, or five years before are different than the questions you're asking today. 
That's just the way that it works because as human beings were evolving and the scriptures are open to the expansion of the questions that we're asking for the time and the place that we live. My kids challenge me on this all of the time. Uh, this happened like a year ago where Caden was praying before dinner one day and he stands up on the chair and he raises his hands to the heavens, I guess, and says, hi, God. And then he goes, hi, God, and says, no answer. Where's God? That he's asking these bigger questions of, you keep telling me that God's with me and all around me. And I keep saying, hi, God, and where's God? that even my five-year-old at the time was open to asking bigger questions. And all that it led us to is to contextualize more something for his life, not to smooth it over or to force it or to make it perfect somehow, or that one day he asked me, what's after us? You know, is monsters after us? I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, there was the dinosaurs and then there's us. So what's after us? I was like, I've never really answered that question before. I've never really thought about what could be after us. But the whole point is he's taught to live in a world where the world is expanding. We have people like Elon Musk who's going to get us to Mars. We have a world where we just have larger perspectives even of the pictures of the universe that we live in. And so if our faith and if our views of the scripture are only being limited at the moment, we're missing the power of where the scriptures might actually take us. And so let's kind of jump into this thing to broaden it up a little bit more. Another thing that we need to recognize in some of our larger perspectives of the Bible is that the entire Bible is not equal. Uh, Now, many of us grew up in a world where every bit of the word of God is equally true. Just so you know, that is not a Christian Orthodox idea. That is an evangelical idea, which was introduced as short as 150 years ago. For most of Christian history and for most of Jewish history, there are books of the Bible that are more important than other books of the Bible. For example, in Christian tradition, in most Orthodox faiths, which represent about 80% of Christians on planet Earth today, every day you read from the Gospels, and then the letters of Paul and other books you read from only like a couple times, right? A week or things like that. They change up more. What it's saying is that the stories of Jesus are primary. In the Jewish world of thinking, the Tanakh represents this acronym for things. The T is for Torah, which is just the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which takes precedence. precedence. There's the Nevi'im, say, Nevi'im with me at home. Beautiful, thank you so much. Uh, That means the prophets. And then there's the Ketuvim, which in uh, Hebrew means the writing. Say, Ketuvim with me at home. Beautiful, thank you so much. I know that you were saying that in your bathroom. That was wonderful. The point is that even in the Hebrew scriptures, there's this idea that the first five books of the Bible are actually more important. That it's the first five books of the Bible that actually teach us about liberation. That the most important, really, where the starting of the story is, is actually in the book of Exodus. That the book of Exodus is where the liberation happens. That most of us just start at the beginning of the book, which is Genesis, and we think, well, this is Genesis, so this is where we actually begin. But we're not going to get to Genesis in this series for four more weeks. We're not going to get to Genesis 1 through 11. Because Genesis 1 through 11 are not repeated ever again in the Old Testament. That should blow your mind. If the heartbeat of Scripture is that God created something good and then we mess it up in a garden by eating a magical piece of fruit and that we're all sinners and that God's plan is to rescue us for being such bad sinners for eating magical fruit, then why is it that the Hebrew Bible never mentions it ever again? Or maybe that's actually not what the Bible's interested in. Maybe theologically that's what we said it was saying later. 
but instead it will repeat the Exodus story again and again and again. What if the story is not, you are bad and God's trying to fix it, which is the story of Genesis one through three that we often tell, which is not the story, wait four more weeks, we'll get there, my friends. What if the story is actually the story of Exodus, a story of this, liberation is at the heartbeat of what it means to be human. What if the story is that God wants to liberate and free every single human being? What if the story is this, that nobody gets to oppress you, that your life is meant to be lived to the fullest? That's where the Hebrew scriptures are leading us. And so with that, my friends, today we're gonna to jump into the story of covenant. Follow along with me in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot and all his wealth, his livestock and all the people he had taken into the household at Haran and headed to the land of Canaan. When they arrived in Canaan, Abraham traveled through the land as far as Shechem. There he sent back camp and all right, we're gonna end there. So here we go. The story is this, that in the ancient world, everybody's view of the gods is that the gods were constantly angry at you that all of the other creation stories in the world where the, the human beings were created to be servants for the gods, that our lives were quite meaningless and that there was never really a beginning and never really a men, an end, that we were just really stuck in the middle all of the time. The story of Abram, which for many of us today probably just seems like a weird story, was revolutionary at the time. The story of Abram is this, that this God wasn't angry, that this God went and found an old man and said, I wanna bless the world through you, that this God was actually interested in individuals' lives, that this God cared about humanity and their details. You're like, well, I've heard that before. 4,000 years ago, there was no other story on planet Earth going on like this. This was a story about who God actually is. This is why the Bible is still interesting to this day that whatever you have going on in 2020, that this God actually cares about you and your journey and where you're going. That was revolutionary in the life of Abraham. And it should still be revolutionary in our own lives about how God sees us. That the story of Abraham is incredibly messy. It's so messy and weird. The chapter after this, Actually, in chapter 12, if you read a little bit further, if you got some time a little bit later today, go ahead and do it. Abraham pimps out his wife, Sarah, to the Pharaoh of Egypt. That's weird. You should stop and notice and not try to clean that up in the Bible. It's strange that a God is asking two old people who have been infertile to be the blessing for all of the nations and have kids, right? Because that's not how biology works. There's oddity and weirdness and messiness and complexity about the Abraham story. And we get that right away. And in that story, what we see is God is for us, even in our messiness. How many of us needed that story as an adolescent? You didn't need a story that God was trying to make you perfect and can you just work really hard and not sin anymore? 
You needed a story that your life is gonna be filled with two steps forward sometimes and one step back. And one day you're gonna be like, yeah, you know, we were in Egypt and that Pharaoh thing. Uh, there's things that happen in your life that you grow from, that you mature from, that you change from. And it teaches us to be gracious to other people, not to judge them, that all of us want people to be gracious to us in the messiness of our lives. So how can we expect that other people are living perfect lives? That the story that we get so early in the scriptures is that there is a God who is for us as human beings. And what God is for is the messiness and the complexity of who we are. And that should be encouraging to you and empowering to you. Because 4,000 years ago, when people first heard this story, it was revolutionary. And hopefully it's still revolutionary for the way that we live in 2020. Follow along with me in Genesis 15. The story will continue like this, that sometime later the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. That in the ancient world, uh, particularly in the Hebrew Bible, there's not really an understanding of heaven and hell. That's something that we added just about 500 years ago in the Middle Ages in a new way. In the Hebrew Bible, all we had was an understanding of Sheol, which is just this idea of death, that when you die, you just go to the dirt and, you know, the world moves on. And this idea of blessing, eternal life, was not one day that you went to a youth group camp and somebody dipped you in the water and you signed the card and raised your hand and that you get to go to heaven one day and now you get to be on white fluffy clouds. The idea of eternal life in the Old Testament was that you would pass, you would have children and that by having children that your life would be continued for generation after generation after generation. So in this story, what is taking place is Abram is saying, God, you're saying that you're blessing me, but how can I be blessed if I cannot have eternal life? If I cannot pass on right, a heritage to children of my own? And the story is powerful because the story is recognizing that Abraham has faith in a different way. The story goes on like this. It says, Then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Pause right there a minute. The word for believed is the word aman in Hebrew. This word is a verb that is all about growth and development and evolution. That so many of us were given an idea of faith that actually meant certitude. Certitude is destructive to your soul because certitude means that somehow you're right and everybody else is wrong. Or we begin to learn an understanding about God and the world that God somehow only speaks through our perspective. It's dangerous. Instead of the actual word of belief, which is an idea of a parent nurturing or fostering a kid, that this thing is growing, that when you're one years old and two years old and five years old, the thing fostered and nurtured into something else. That what Abraham was credited as faith was the continuous figuring out of the moving target. That Abram was saying, I don't know how that's going to work out, but I'm going to allow that thing to grow in me. It's not blind faith. It's not just, again, laying the Bible on your face and saying, yes, God, give me lottery numbers. I receive that right now in Jesus' name. No, 
It's a story of saying, I'm figuring it out and God's gonna be for me on this journey of figuring out the things that I don't actually understand. Years after Mother Teresa died, she wrote a book talking about the fact that almost as soon as she arrived in Calcutta to take care of lepers, she began to doubt and wonder about her faith. She began to question if God was even real. There's this quote from her book that goes like this. It says, in my soul, I feel just this terrible pain of loss, of God not wanting me, of God not being God, of God not existing. That for Mother Teresa, what she realized is there's moments in her life where her belief, her faith is not certitude, but she kept allowing that verb, that aman, to grow and be nurtured in her. And she kept following the way of Jesus, even when there was the days that emotionally it wasn't there or mentally it didn't make sense, or she just was crying out, God, where are you? that this is the story that we're invited into and how true is that of actually all of us? How many of us have had moments where we're just like, I don't know. And what if this story is God saying, I get that and I'm going to be for you even in your unknowing, even in your figuring it out, that the faith I'm asking you to have is not one of certitude, it's one of evolution and growth and process. The story in Genesis 15 continues on like this. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? And here's where the story gets really weird. The Lord told him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, as we all have laying around, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And so three turtle doves. So Abraham presented all these to him and killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. And he did not, however, cut the birds in half. Some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses, but Abraham chased them away. As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a terrifying darkness came down over him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. That is not comforting words. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end, they will come away with great wealth. As for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land, for the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. This is a weird story if we don't have a larger understanding of what's taking place in the scriptures. That in Abraham's world, there was an understood way of doing the deal that there wasn't capitalism or promissory notes that you needed to sign, or you didn't need a lawyer just to get a Verizon contract, that in this world, your word was your bond. And so two parties would make a covenant with one another. And how they would generally make a covenant with one another is that they would take two animals. They would take the lives of something else. They would literally go through the process of cutting these animals in half because it's instilling in you, this thing that I'm doing is incredibly serious. This choice that I'm making actually matters for my life. And what they would do is after they would cut those animals in half, they would lay them on two sides and the two parties would walk through the middle of those carcasses. And the idea was that may it be to me as it is to these animals if I break this contract. Many of us would be much more reluctant to post what we post on Instagram if we had to make those kind of commitments. It's this deeper story of your yes is yes and your no is no. And if you're not ready to do something, that's totally okay. But here's where it gets really interesting in the Hebrew Bible. And I know you've been excited for this moment. 
that in this story, when Abraham has the dream, when the animals are split in half, Abraham never walks through the, the, the dead carcasses. Only the fire of God goes through. That in this story, it's all about the idea that God is the one who's committed to the process. God didn't even ask Abraham to be a joint venture on this effort. God was saying, I got this no matter what, that things are gonna be good in your future and things are gonna be bad in your future, but I'm always gonna be for you. That in this story, it was about the more powerful party saying, I'm always there for the powerless. What if our world was like that? That what if we learned this narrative of God and that those of us that were powerful would be the ones who stood up and did the right thing in our contracts? What if in our culture, it was potentially landlords who actually had the money who gave relief to those who are renting from them? What if in our country, it was the corporations who received trillions of dollars of relief in this crisis while small businesses received $500 billion to be split between millions of them? What if we reversed the way that we lived as human beings because our covenant to one another was so serious because we knew that God's covenant to us is that serious? that God is for us and God is always using God's power to empower us from our most powerless positions? What if we so believed in God in that way that, that this is how we lived our lives? And that where God goes in the story is this, Abraham, I'm going to bless you in this way. I'm gonna give you all that I have. One day you'll have children. One day your children will be more numerous than the stars in the sky so that you one day will go out and bless everybody which was radical in the ancient world. In the ancient world, you only blessed your family. You only blessed your tribe. You only blessed people who got along with you or worked for you or looked like you or voted the same way as you. But the radical idea that entered into the world 4,000 years ago through the covenant with Abraham was this, that in God's economy, if you take a million away from infinity, you still have infinity. In God's economy, God is always using God's power to bless the powerless. And God does that so that if we ever have any ounce of power, that we too will bless the powerless. How would the world look if we lived radically in the same way that the scriptures are saying that God lives for us? That this story is a story that God is always for you. That's the heartbeat of covenant. Our story of humanity will be messy. We're all unlikely heroes. But the Bible is beautiful in all the pages that follow that despite the complexity, despite the figuring it out, despite the messiness, this God has always been for us, will always be for us, and will always be ahead of us in our journey. I have a question for you all to be thinking about uh, as we get out of here, and is how does seeing that God is for us change the way you see the Bible? Enjoy. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.